Episode 12 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. What is going on, Aviation Nation, and welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today, we are talking with Steve. Some of you might know Steve by his popular aviation Instagram page, Combat Learjet. In this episode, we're going to find out why Steve chose aviation, what kind of mentors he had early in his life that helped push him toward a military career, why now is the best time to become an Air Force pilot, and how they're short 1,500 pilots. We talk about the three paths that you can take to become a military pilot. We talk about how it's okay if you don't love flying at first, what it's like to fly in the National Guard. We also mention how a squadron is currently being slated to be closed by the end of the year and what we can do to help. If you do enjoy this episode, please leave us a review. You can leave us a review on our iTunes page. You can DM us or comment on our Instagram page at pilot to pilot or send us an email, pilottopilothq at gmail.com. Our goal at pilot to pilot is to truly create the best content for you and those reviews and those comments and those DMs truly help us create that content because we aim to encourage and inspire aviators to continue their flight training, get into aviation, or just become the best pilot they can possibly be. I wanna go ahead and remind you guys about the partnership that we have going on right now with Log10 Pro X. Head to the website, it's redeem.log10.com slash pilot to pilot. You have the opportunity to save 12 to 23% off your subscription. I know that aviation is expensive and saving money in any way can help. Please go there. Let me know if you use that discount because I'd love to pass it on and they'll let you know that you guys are enjoying their product. I want to take the time now to give the podcast to Rochelle from I Am Rochelle. She's going to be talking about her foundation, I Heart Flying. I Heart Flying is a great foundation that she has started and she has some exciting news that she wants to share. So let's go ahead and let Rochelle share that. Hey, AV Nation, this is I Am Rochelle coming straight to you from Los Angeles, California. I have some amazing news and updates that I would love to share with you since my last conversation with Justin. For about a year and a half, I have been putting together a foundation called the I Heart Flying Foundation, which our mission is to help young women take control of their flight paths, and help them achieve their aviation dreams. Because we need more female aviators. So, with that being said, I am super excited to finally announce the official launch of the iHeart Flying Foundation. And yes, it gets even better. I am proud to announce our partnership with the EAA. They have decided to team up with us to offer my very first scholarship opportunity beginning on October 2nd, 2017. Make sure to check out our website, iheartflying.org, that is I-H-A-R-T flying.org for more scholarship information, who is eligible, how and when to apply. I'd like to take a quick moment to acknowledge and thank our partners and sponsors. First and foremost, the EAA, Bose Aviation, Rich Pickett with Personal Wings, Jetta Viva, and several more. Thank you all so much for believing in me enough to join me on this journey and making this dream a reality. Rochelle, thank you for sharing that with us. The iHeart Flying Foundation is a great opportunity for any woman in aviation. If you're interested in aviation or you are in aviation, go ahead and check out our website, find out what you need to do to apply for this scholarship. And with that, let's get today's episode started. Here's Combat Learjet. Hey, Steve, thanks for coming on the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Hey, you bet. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on here. No problem. I really appreciate you guys coming on. And I think that your story as a military pilot will really be able to help the people that are looking down that road and want that to be their path. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd be uh, more than happy to share that. Well, cool. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Why aviation? What made you want to be a pilot? You know, as I've thought back over that over the years, I, I remember probably had my first airplane ride when I was about 10 years old. Flew with my grandma from uh, I'm from New Mexico. I flew from Albuquerque to uh, Dallas. And uh, I just remember it was a cloudy day and we took off. And, uh, you know, I obviously wanted to be by the window so I could see out. And I, I can still remember, you know, popping through those clouds and then it being sunny and a different world on top. And, you know, my grandma wasn't as interested in it as I was, but I just kept telling her, look how, look how beautiful it is up here. You know, it's fluffy white clouds on top and they were kind of dark and ominous uh, below. So, you know, as far back as I can remember, I just, I thought flying was great. You know, I watched airplanes and, you know, loved everything about it. And then I had a cousin who, uh, as I was probably in my teenage years, um, I had a cousin that joined the Air Force and he ended up flying B-1 bombers. Oh, wow. And I'll never forget, you know, I'm still 
trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. But he's sending back pictures and I saw pictures of him and his flight suit and a leather jacket um, standing in front of a nice car. Uh, you know, all these things as a kid, you're like, oh, that's awesome. And he flew what I thought uh, and still think is one of the coolest airplanes we ever had was the B-1 bomber. So I think those kind of influences along the way uh, helped me to realize I wanted to be a pilot. And then I just kind of had to figure out the, the route of the military and, uh, I also wanted to be in the military. Um, my dad was in the military. He had served as, in submarines, and I, I knew the military was something I wanted to do, and it was definitely a, a calling for me. I was hoping to put uh, the two together, you know, to be able to fly in the military. For sure. So outside of your cousin, did you have anyone else in your family that was in aviation, or was he the only one? My parents had a really good friend. He was a fighter pilot, and he uh, went on to be a colonel, and he helped me as I got closer to wanting to do that. He kind of helped show the road to get there. But really, I'm the first person in my family really ever to get into aviation, and I really think I'm probably the first one to make the military a career. I had several people serve for you know the four years or six years, but the career thing was really me doing the first thing. Nice. That's really cool to hear that. Because I know a lot of people, like aviation is a big but also small community. So if you're outside of that community and you don't have anyone that's inside of it, it might seem like it's very hard to break into it and it's very hard to start. But in reality, it's not very hard to start. It's really easy. It's as easy as calling the local flight school or if you're in the military, just look going on their website and researching the military and seeing how you can get in there. So I think that's really cool that you kind of ask people in your circle and ask for help and sought out mentors. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, honestly, I will I will tell you right now, from the military standpoint, is a great time to try to get a pilot slot. I know the Air Force is about 1,500 pilots short right now. So uh, they are actively looking for guys to want to come into the military and, you know, make it through pilot training and then commit. I think I don't know the exact commitment now, but I want to say you're going to have to commit to the military for 10 or 11 years if you're going to be a pilot. I also heard that the pay is pretty good for them re retaining those pilots that are willing to spend some money because they need them so bad. Yeah, there's there's some current uh, bonuses that they're paying pilots to try to keep them to stay in when you get you know down the road a ways. Uh, again, the military spends a lot of money on you to become a pilot and they want to get their money's worth out of you. I was told when I went through that it was over a million dollars to put you through pilot training. Oh, wow. There's a reason why they, they don't want to train you and put you through all this stuff and have you up to speed on all the different missions and then, you know, leave and go somewhere else. I mean, just thinking about it with me spending the money on my own flight career, I would never want to leave aviation because I know that I have so much money invested and it's not even close to a million dollars. I can only imagine spending a million dollars on someone and then leaving after 10 years. It's like, well, you still haven't fully served your yeah. whole contract. So, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it, it is. And and, that, and that's why, you know, the military is working hard to try to, you know, attract people. And, you know, I'll be honest too, to go and to get into the military and do that, you everything's got to line up. I, I'm blessed in that aspect that the physical aspect i know a lot of people that have you know some minor physical things that unfortunately disqualify you for flying in the military so it's it to me it could be simple things but they're things that you know whatever you might have that if your vision's not quite good enough so i was grateful all that early on all lined up and i, I didn't have those issues but uh, i understand there's people out there that would love to be in and and they have that and i i feel for you because i know it's disappointing to think that something that's totally out of your control could impact whether or not uh, you be a pilot. You can be a pilot. You know, for example, one of the things that I hear a lot of guys, a lot of guys ask me on Instagram is, uh, you know, I'm I have ADHD. Can I be a military pilot? And I don't know all the rules to that, but I know there's some restrictions on that. And if you have that and you're taking some of that medicine, you'd have to research it. But it is a restriction, and depending on how long it's been since you've taken your medicine and all that could determine whether or not you could do that. It is unfortunate and I do understand, but I also understand why they do it because you're flying a multi-million dollar airplane. They have a lot of money. You are sitting in a very, very complex airplane, a very complex cockpit, and they don't know what those risks would be if someone's taking the medicine or someone just, I feel like those rules are there for a reason. I feel like there's been some kind of instance of why they have those rules. Yeah, that that's true. And I know in the last probably five years or so, they changed the color blindness test. The old one, I would say, was much simpler. The new one is very difficult. And 
has given uh, given guys a hard time. Uh, the history behind that is they found that in some of these uh, next generation fighters, some of the colors they were using on their uh, multifunction displays, some pilots had been flying for years and done fine on the colorblind test. However, these newer magentas and some of that, they couldn't see those colors. So they realized, whoa, maybe we're not actually testing the right colors <laughs> to make sure. So that is what I had heard the history behind why we have a new, what I would consider more difficult uh, colorblindness test. Oh, wow. That's interesting. To know. You don't even think about that kind of stuff like as a civilian about how they're using new technology and new colors. They need a color for every single possible thing that they could show on the map. So I could bet that that is a big reason why they would change it. Yeah. And, you know, for me personally, I never had any problems with the original one. And the new one is was definitely uh, more difficult. I found myself really really having to look hard to uh, pick out a few of the colors. Well, cool. So you said you took your first plane ride when you were about 10. How long was it between that time and when you actually were able to fly a plane your own on your own? Yeah. So I actually didn't, I personally didn't start flying until um, I got to college. So my path to the military, there's really three paths you can take. Uh, you can go to the Air Force Academy and to be a pilot, you have to be an officer. So you have to go through one of these officer type training schools. The Air Force Academy is probably the most known. You go there, you're obviously going to be an officer and you can become selected for a pilot slot, depending on how you perform at the academy. The other route is the route I took, which is ROTC. I went to college. I went to the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque and I went through ROTC. That, unlike the academy, depending on how you perform there, Throughout the year or so, or a couple years as you were in ROTC, is determined whether or not you got a pilot slot. And then the last one is you could go, if you already have a college degree, you can go through uh, OTS, Officer Training School. And again, I don't, I don't know all the ins and outs to say, but it's depending on how you perform on whether or not you're going to get uh, selected for a pilot slot. So... So I, to answer your question, I started flying when I was in college, uh, started working on my private pilot's license. So um, I ended up getting my private pilot's license, I think my junior year of college. And, okay. Uh, so all your training then was uh, military? Yeah. So private pilot's was on my own. I paid for that myself. And then once I got that, and then I graduated from college and I waited about eight or nine months and then I went to pilot training. Would you say most people start that actually pay their own way through pirate pilot license or if you waited long enough would they have paid the whole thing for you you know i i think some of these are competitive like i know ots whether or not you get a pilot slot or not i think there's some competitive uh, nature to it and if you have some of your own flying hours that that helps you out so I would say, and I, I can't speak, I'm a little removed from that, but, you know, I would recommend to anybody, definitely get out there and take some lessons, see if you're really going to like it. Uh, I knew some folks that got to pilot training and they ended up dropping out and just saying, I just don't like it. It's not what I want to do. So flying's not for everybody. No, it's not. I mean, flying can be a lot of fun, but for some people, flying can be terrifying. And even if you like your first, in, like there's a difference between your first intro flight and really getting into like the studying and the, it can be really tough just the training to be a pilot. And sometimes you don't want to do slow flight for <laughs> every single day for a week, but sometimes you just have to, to perfect it. And sometimes people can see that when they start their career and when they start training and they might not like it anymore. And also one thing I always recommend is get your medical, see if this is like, you might like flying, but you might medically not be able to fly. So you want to make sure you can get the medical as soon as possible to see this is a realistic opportunity for you. Absolutely. Yep. That is, that's right. And the one thing I would say with flying and I would encourage folks when you try, when you first start out is nobody really loves it at first. It, there's a lot of work that goes into that. Trying to figure it out is very disorienting. Some people struggle with air sickness. Uh, I just remember early on not going, man, your mind just doesn't think in that dimension when you first start. And for me personally, it took a while till I really started enjoying it more. So uh, I would encourage you just because maybe the first few times you try it and you're not sure that you like it that much, you know, give it a few more to see whether or not it starts coming around and, and you start enjoying it. Yeah, I remember this was very early in my training. It was pro I probably had five lessons. I think I had like a one week off in college and I went home and I came back after that one week and I went for a flight lesson and I couldn't hold altitude. My turns are terrible. I was behind the plane on everything. It was like my sixth lesson ever. And I just thought this was the worst thing ever. And I actually thought about stopping. I thought about maybe this isn't what I thought it was. Maybe I'm not meant to be a pilot. But like you said, 
I gave it a couple more lessons and I realized that I just needed to knock the rust off and it'd come back to me. And it was kind of a wake up call for me to kind of not take that much time off in between when I'm early in training because I had to spend more money by making up by how much time I took off. Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. If you see those people at the airport that love aviation, it's okay if you kind of have some doubts. Like I think probably every single person that is a pilot has had a doubt in their mind if this is something they want to do, whether it's financial reasons, whether it's just the airlines haven't treated them right or anything, but everyone kind of doubts their decision. And it's important just to keep going because aviation is so rewarding and so worth it. And you just got to power through it. Yeah, that well said. I can remember at pilot training being one of those guys going, man, I just don't know if I like this. It it takes your brain a while to think at 500 miles an hour. I mean, we live we live in a, at best, maybe 65, 75 mile an hour world. And then you step into an airplane and you start flying those speeds. And I just remember thinking early on, in fact, just a quick story. I was, so at pilot training, you fly a T-30, I flew a T-37. I'm dating myself a little bit. And then I flew a T-38. T-38 is a supersonic trainer, but uh, your very first ride in the T-38, you're up front. The instructor pilot, you sit front and back. He's behind you, and he's uh, demonstrating the, the takeoff. And I, I just remember looking out as the takeoff progressed and the speed at which it was happening. I mean, we were down the runway. Gear was retracted, climbing out at uh, 25 degrees nose high and in the area before I realized really what had happened. And I just was thinking to myself, I'm never going to get this. That is, it is way too fast for my uh, slow New Mexican brain, and it's just not going to work out. And, you know, over time, it, it did. But it's one of those things in flying that you, you just have to give it some time to, to adjust to the new world. Oh, yeah. Practice makes perfect without a doubt. And I can't even imagine going into a T-38 and trying to fly that. I actually saw one today and I posted it on my Instagram stories. There are two T-38s out in Omaha, Nebraska, where I'm flying UPS. And they're really cool to see. And it's unbelievable like how long they are and how small their wing is. Their wing is not very big at all in those things. So it's kind of crazy. Yeah, the wing in that is just almost paper thin. Uh, we just called it the white rocket. And, you know, we, we could talk a whole show about that. But the, the airplane wing is almost perpetually in a stall you know you're coming around the final turn and it's shaking and rumbling and you know they told us when i remember when i was flying it the stall is you know it's just a spectrum there and it's almost trying to do that but it's you know the closer you get the more it's going to shake the more it's going to rumble and uh, you just you just have to really be cautious on that a lot of guys get themselves in trouble but there's just not much wing creating any lift out there that plane looks like it likes to go fast and does not want to go slow at all it does go fast. If I remember right, the roll rate, it would roll three complete times in a second if you put the stick all the way to the side. Oh my gosh, that would be very intense. It will it will slam your head to the side for sure. Oh yeah. And one quick story about the T-38. I was, have you ever been to, you might not since you're in the Air Force, but, or actually you might have, Victoria, Texas. Have you been down there before? I have not, no. Okay. Victoria, Texas. I know the Randolph Air Force Base in San Antonio, they have the T-38s go there a lot to do some training. And I was down there doing aerial survey and it is really crazy how you start a T-38, how someone from the outside has to go underneath the airplane and they have to unscrew something to generate the plane to start. I just thought that was so wild. We needed a start card, if I remember right, to, uh, you know, to get the engines going. So you don't have an APU. You just needed air initially to get it turning. Yeah, so it's so funny. And I remember once the plane is started, they have to go unhook the start cart. And I can't imagine how nervous a person doing that for the first time would be hearing two huge engines above them spewing out some serious heat and some serious noise. Yep, yep, exactly. So you flew the T-37, the T-38. What other trainers did you fly? Or what, other, what is a typical training path in the military? Yeah, so I'll just, I guess, give a quick history of my military flying. I, I went to pilot training. Pilot training lasts a year. Uh, you fly the T-37. Again, I'm dating myself now. Now guys are flying the T-6 and uh, the T-1 uh, if you're not going fighter uh, route. If you're going to fighter route, they're still flying the T-38. So it'd be the T-6, T-38. So when I went through, it was a T-37, T-38. And that lasts a year. I graduated from pilot training. I graduated at a time that they had, unlike right now, they had way more pilots than they had cockpits for the pilot. So about 50 to 60% of my class didn't get an airplane. They ended up having to go to a desk job for three years waiting for an airplane. You know, it just cycles. Things cycle back and forth in the military. So I was thankful to get an airplane out of pilot training. I got a KC-135. Um, I went from there to Castle Air Force Base out in California. Um, it was about a four-month training for uh, learning to fly the KC-135. And 
prior to that, I also went to survival training. All, all military pilots have to go through survival training, and it's survival out in the woods along with what they call resistance training, which if you happen to be captured and become a prisoner of war, they, uh, they teach you how to uh, resist, which it's not a fun time, but it, it was great training, I'm sure. Yeah, that does not sound like fun, but it sounds like necessary training to have, especially with crazy stuff going on in our world, and you never know what could happen, and you got to learn a lot of skills to be in the military. Yeah, so that's part of your training, and then I, I did the KC-135. From there, I went to uh, Griffiths Air Force Base, uh, upstate New York, Rome, New York, and I was a co-pilot. I flew the KC-135 up there, and then I also flew the T-37 again when I was up there. Co-pilots at the time were not getting a lot of flight hours, so they would let uh, the co-pilots fly the 37 to continue to build hours and improve in airmanship. And then the the military decided to close that uh, base down, and I moved to Fairchild Air Force Base which was in Spokane, Washington. Uh, again, moved there as a co-pilot in the KC-135 and then uh, eventually upgraded to aircraft commander and then instructor pilot in the 135. I was there about four years and I also flew the C-12, which is 200. I flew that while I was a co-pilot during that time. And then at the end of that four years, uh, you know, the Air Force wants you to move about every three to four years. So I had to find another job, another location. I ended up going to Altus Air Force Base, where I was an instructor pilot teaching other guys how to fly the KC-135. That school used to be at Castle. They closed that down and moved to Altus. So when you say that they would like you to move every three to four years, is it one, is it mandatory for you to do that? And two, do you have to find your own job or... Or do they place you at places? You know, that's went back and forth over the years. They do want you to move around and get other experiences. They don't like you to be in one place too long. Feel like you're not gaining experience in different places, different airplanes. I'm not sure how it is right now. I, I know when I was time, I we had a choice. I mean, you could apply for different airplanes. You may or may not get it. And then ultimately, the Air Force needs are above your needs, and they will put you where they need you sometimes. That just varies, and I couldn't really tell you how it is currently. Tell me a little bit about the flying the KC-35. Was that a was that a fun plane to fly? Did you enjoy it, or what was that like? Yeah, I, I did enjoy the the KC-135. Uh, when I first got in it, uh, this was back in the SAC days, and we were setting alert, and we were, you know, it was still at the very end of the Cold War with Russia. So we practiced, and we're really uh, up to speed on, no kidding, if things go to hell in a handbasket, you know, we're going to launch. We're going to launch with B-52s, and we're going to get airborne, and uh, if need be, uh, you know, utilize their weapons. We set hard alert for that. We were, no kidding, would set an alert facility with B-52 pilots, and they would exercise us. Uh, you know, once a week, we would get a, a klaxon would go off and we would go racing out to the airplane and start engines and be prepared to take off in, uh, in a moment's notice. And then the world kind of changed and that mission went away. We, we stopped uh, setting alert and then almost overnight, the mission became the 135 was uh, now deployed all over the world in support of all sorts of uh different conflicts that were going on. And I was caught up in a lot of that. I was gone a lot. I can't even name them all. Somalia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, the uh, no-fly zones over Iraq in the south and the north. Just lots of stuff going on around the world. So I, I deployed quite often for that. Enjoyed the mission, but was gone quite a bit. How long would you say your deployment would be at a time? You know, it varied. And I know guys now are gone even more or have been, you know, with uh, Afghanistan and Iraq and everything going on there. But uh, I would say that uh, you were typically gone around 120 days at a time. I think now they've moved up to maybe even 180 days at times. So uh, that's the hard part of the military. We've been at war, what seems like, for the last uh, 15 years in one shape or form. A lot of military guys have been gone a lot. Like you said, they have their down, like what do you say, the Air Force is down like 1,500 pilots, isn't that what you said? That's correct. Yeah. You got to imagine that they. They need 1,500 pilots, but they don't have 1,500 pilots, but they still need the pilots they have now to fly like they have 1,500 pilots. So I can only imagine that the, the time frame that they're gone is either going to go up or continue to be long. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. When you're short pilots, the ops tempo for the ones around get even heavier. So, uh, uh, yeah. And I, you know, I'm thinking, I'm hoping the world's going to change a little bit in the future. Maybe we're not as involved in so many different things, but you just never know. I mean, it's just, you know, we don't, we don't make those decisions. We just have to uh, go where they tell us to go. Yeah, you never know. And there's always going to be something going on in the world where that's going to require some kind of presence of a military. So you, like you said, you never know what could happen. Exactly. 
So I made the decision at the end of my time, which is 10 years, to get out of the active duty and join the Air National Guard. What kind of role does the KC-135 play? Isn't it mainly a refueling airplane right now? Was that the same role back, say, in its prime, or do you think that role has changed a lot for that plane? No, it's the same role in essence. It is. It's an air refueling platform. We were able to carry some cargo. It's pretty limited. The, the 135 was, you know, couldn't carry anything like, you know, the obviously the C-17, C-5, those guys really uh, move the cargo. But we could carry limited cargo. But yeah, air refueling was the primary primary mission. And we did uh, both in theater, you're refueling a lot of fighters, you know, as they're flying cap or doing, you know, whatever they're doing. Refueling AWACS as it's, you know, keeping an eye on what's going on. We also did a lot of when... When things would start up, you'd have a big push to get, you know, all the airplanes and equipment into a theater. So when wars were getting ready to kick off, you would do a lot of refueling uh, back and forth over the Atlantic, helping move that stuff. My buddy flies for the Navy. Do you guys ever refuel other Navy planes or is it strictly Air Force refuels Air Force, Navy refuels Navy and so on? No, we uh, we refuel them all. The, the Navy uses a different system than the Air Force. The Navy uses what's called a probe and drogue which is the basket. That's the way all the airplanes are set up. So we would have to modify our boom to put the drogue on, you know, just the basket hanging down. And and then if you've seen the videos, the Navy just basically flies the probe up. And um, it's a difficult process for them, especially at night and in the weather. That basket's moving around. And it, a lot of times it's hard for them to uh, get a contact. Who is the process harder for, would you say? Is it harder for the actual, is it harder for the KC-135 or is it harder for the the fighter that needs to be refueled? Yeah, definitely the guys on the back doing it. I mean, we we try to fly a smooth platform for them, try to stay out of the weather if we can, uh, try not to put the sun in their eyes. There's a lot of things you can try to do to help, but those guys are on the back actually having to make it happen. Yeah, it's difficult for them to uh, sometimes get those contacts. And especially when you're going over the ocean and you got to get it. I mean, you either get it and get your gas or you're having to divert and land somewhere. So yeah, for sure. And I'm sure the options are very limited. And over the ocean, I'm sure there's certain places where you can refuel. And I bet there's even places where like this is where the refueling stops no matter what, because they're too far to go if they can't land anywhere. Yep. There'll be times and I've seen it where they couldn't get on or something was going wrong and they'd have to divert uh, to their location just because they didn't have the gas to proceed on. So that's the system. The Air Force just uses the boom uh, and just contact. That's actually a better system, I think. We we can offload a lot more gas uh, a lot quicker. I think it just seems to me like it was a little bit easier for the uh, pilots on the backside. Now, could you guys switch the boom in flight or is that something where you're just set up solely for Navy or solely for Air Force when you're in the air? Yeah, no, you can't switch it in flight. It was done on the ground and, uh, you know, they would just depend on what our frag was, what what missions we were going to be flying. You know, they, if they put the drogue on, then you were only going to do Navy type uh, refueling. Gotcha. Cool. Or Marines. Yeah, or Marines. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, when I'm flying on the radio, I always hear like, all right, cleared to, to do this. Or I always hear the military planes practicing and doing this and doing that. So it's cool to kind of hear a little bit of an inside story of who it's harder on, what the process is like, the different kind of booms that they use, different kind of systems that they use, because it's really like you always hear it. And it's just cool to, to actually kind of visualize it and get a little understanding of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, air refueling is a vital part of our uh, air superiority. Really, you know, it's without being able to refuel our fighters and all, and keep them airborne for the amount of time, we, we would lose a ton of ability. So it's a vital process. We understand we're tanker pilots, but we also understand that it's uh, it plays a vital role. Oh yeah, you guys serve a very vital purpose in what the military needs to help out in any war or any situation. It was fun. It was a fun time. I enjoyed it. Like I said, for me, it was just being gone so much was the was the hard part. I know pilots, just civilian pilots, complain about being gone as much as they are and what at times they're gone for five days. I think sometimes we can kind of put it in perspective and listen to this and hear what you say about how you're gone for 120 days and how much harder that is on a pilot or how much harder that is on your family and your career. So it's something that civilian pilots can take away from this podcast is hearing that and hearing that it could be worse. Yeah, I mean, everybody's got their own. And honestly, uh, I'm learning that there's trials in both sides for sure. You know, I mean, we were, I was grateful that I wasn't having, you know, the military was spending money to train me. So I, I had that, but the, the trials for me personally were at least, you know, just being gone and, and not knowing and getting back and trying to get back into your normal life and then immediately having to go again. Or, or sometimes you just get the call. You know, I had it once where I was just, was at the squadron that said, go home, pack your bags. And within an hour or two, I was on an airplane headed out, you know, not knowing where I was going and how long I was going to be there. So. Uh, th- those were some of the things, but that's not normal. I wouldn't say, I mean, I, I don't want to scare people off. That's not a, 
a normal everyday thing. You know, the, these are these are back during you know some of the conflicts we're going through. There's pluses and minuses to both sides of it. And like you said, I don't want to deter anyone from choosing the military because of this. And a lot of people that go to the military usually feel called to do the military and they know what they're signing up for. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And what would you, I know we talked about how there's a a big shortage in the Air Force right now. What would you say is the main reason why there's a big shortage, why people are choosing civilian over Air Force? Do you think it's the lifestyle? Do you think it's just how airlines are paying more now and that's kind of hurting them? Or do you think that they would be in the same situation, whether the airlines are hiring and paying as much as they are now? Well, that's a million dollar question. (laughs) That's a good one. I mean, I mean, really, that's the Air Force is looking at that. Everybody's trying to figure out what is it, you know, uh, as a newly retired guy, I can speak a little bit more open to it, I guess. Um, it's probably a combination of things. I'd say, number one, the airlines are hiring. As simple as that sounds, that's that's attractive to a lot of guys. Um, if the airlines aren't hiring, it's amazing how the Air Force's retention rate you know, goes up. That Guys, there's nowhere to go if there's not a job outside, so they stay. Airlines are hiring is a part of it. And then I would also say that uh, guys are tired of all the additional duties in the military. You know, a lot of a lot of guys are, uh, you're a pilot, but you do so many other things besides fly. And some people just want to fly. So I know that is one of those things. I know they're looking at how to fix that. You know, the, the additional duty that, you know, just gets piled on guys and they just get a chance. And then I'd say the other thing is lifestyle. Uh, just like we talked about, uh, all the conflicts that have been going on. These guys have just been worked hard, gone, gone, gone. They have families. They're not seeing them. And it's appealing to think you could get hired at an airline and maybe be gone two, three, four nights and then be home for three or four nights. Um, I know that's a lot easier on your life than being gone, like we talked about the 120 days. Because in 120 days, if you have a family, you're married and kids, I mean, your wife has to learn to live without you and the kids have to learn to get along. And and then all of a sudden you come back and it's just a, it's hard to integrate. So I, I, all those things I think play into it. There's, there's a lot of factors to uh, why the military is losing pilots right now. Well, yeah, it's interesting to say that you say 120 days is a long time. I mean, think about having a baby, like your kid changes so much and there's so many things that you could miss in that time. And they've developed their own routines. Like you say, I'm sure even some commercial, I know it's not to the same extent as 120 days. I'm sure they miss a lot in their five days. So no matter what route you choose, you're still going to miss things. And I think that's part of the, you need to consider that when you choose this process and even consider that when you are looking for a wife is finding someone that can kind of have fun on their own and kind of not count on you all the time because there's going to be times when your job calls and you're going to have to go and it's just how it is. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I, I mean, this sounds silly, but it took me a while to realize that being a pilot meant I was going to fly places. You know, that just by the nature of that you're leaving your home and you're going to go places. Now, some people are like, that's awesome. And there there's an amazing aspect to that. And I saw amazing parts of the country having flown, you know, all over the world and seen some amazing things that I never had the opportunity. But the negative side of that is because I was flying all over the world and seeing places, I was gone. So it's a double-edged sword and you just have to take that into account as a pilot. Pilots fly places. And I know it seems simple, but it's the reality of it. And, you know, when you're young and you're single, you're like, that's great. But things change at times when you get married and have kids. Yeah, you're not going to be young and single forever, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, you need to take that into account. But it's hard when you're, what, 20 years old to kind of foresee in the future and think of yourself as getting older and what you want to do when you get older. You're kind of living in the now when you're 19, 20 years old. Absolutely, yeah. And another thing that's kind of hard is I know I don't I didn't get to travel over the world with flying, but when I did aerial survey, I'd get to go to some cool cities and some cool towns, and it was fun. But I would I want to go travel with my wife, and I want to explore those places with my wife. And when you're, it's kind of sad to be by yourself all the time. You know, you kind of want to be experiencing these things with the person that you chose to marry or choose to be with you know yep exactly that's exactly right so i remember one time i was in san antonio and they have the river walk there and i wanted to take the boat ride tour on the river walk and i was by myself and there was only one seat so i'm sitting between two huge families and it's just like me in between these families that are shouting at each other and i was just like this is terrible <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> like i feel so lonely yeah, right yeah. now it is uh, yeah it is it's funny you bring up that there's an aspect of that i would say you know that you are you are lonely at times out there doing some of this stuff but again there's pros and cons the pros are you're getting a chance to just 
you know, see some of these places that I personally would never have done or been able to afford. It just has both sides of it. I guess that's the point. Yeah, it does. Like we said before, both sides, every side has their pluses, every side has their minuses. And, and if you feel called to go to the Air Force, by all means go to the Air Force. It can be a rewarding career for you. I've talked in previous podcasts about how rewarding flying for the military can be and knowing that you serve a purpose in the greater good. So yeah. that's definitely something that sometimes money can't even compete with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so you said that you were in active duty for 10 years, and then you got out of active duty and you started flying Learjets. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you did flying the Learjets and how that whole process went of choosing to go in the Air National Guard versus maybe flying contract flying for the military and stuff like that? Sure, you bet. Yeah, I, I got out. Uh, I'm at, my intentions when I uh, got out of the active duty was to go to the airlines. I had put all my applications in, and I was going to look for a guard or reserve unit, which I could fly part-time to complete my military career. You need 20 years to get a retirement. I had flown 10 active duty, so I needed to fly in a guard or reserve unit for 10 more years. And that, that's the beauty of the guard and reserve. They allow you to do your military career and still have a civilian job at the same time doing whatever you do. So, uh, so that was my intention. Just a quick story. I was I was flying the KC-135. I was training a student and we were flying an air refueling track over the top of Colorado Springs. I remember we were in our turn looking down and I I, I told this, uh, uh, Mark was his name. I said, Mark, this looks like a great place to, to live. And he said, oh, yeah, Colorado Springs is beautiful. And then uh, he said, and by the way, there's a guard unit there. I'm like, there is? He goes, yeah, they fly C-21s, which is the Lear 35. So he happened to have a phone number to the director of operations, which is the guy that kind of runs the squadron. And, you know, the rest is history. I made some calls and ended up interviewing with a whole truckload of other people and really didn't feel like I'd get hired, but I was offered a job, a full-time job. The Guard has basically three types of positions. It has what we call a traditional guardsman, which is a part-time, you know, one weekend a month, two weekends in the summer is the basic of what you're going you're gonna to serve in the Guard. They also have what's called an AGR, which is an active guard reserve. And that person is exactly like an active duty, same benefits, same everything, only they're in the guard. The only difference is they don't move around in the active duty. Like I said, you move every three to four years. In the guard, you're living where you live, which is a great deal if you like where you're living. And then the third position is actually what I was hired into is called a uh, air reserve technician, or we just call them technicians in the guard, which is, it's a complicated process, but basically it's a GS position that is also attached to that uh, part-time guard position. So I wore the uniform every single day and I was in and out of military status. It was seamless. You wouldn't see it, but it's just a, it's just a different position that's in the guard. So it, in my case, it was a GS-13. You fly in that civilian state and you move in and out of the guard state as necessary. Anytime I deployed overseas and did that, I moved, I was strictly in a military status. So it's a, it's a homeland type thing. It's just a different method of the guard being able to have positions that, uh, you know, serve our country here. So it's really cool to hear that there are different options because, I mean, me as outside looking in, I just see the Air National Guard and I just think Air National Guard. I don't think of anything else, you know. Yep. I, do, I don't understand how complicated and intricate it can actually be. That's it. That's it. So because they hired me into that full-time position, that pretty much put my uh, airlines on hold at the time. And they asked me to commit to two years of that. So um, I did. And in the midst of that, that two-year time frame was when September 11th happened and everything changed. The airlines all, you know, you know the story there, went out of business, a lot of them, and a lot of guys were furloughed. And, and I ended up really enjoying my job and at that point decided I, I'm happy here. I have no intention of going on to the airlines. So uh, long story short, I ended up working uh, in that position for 17 years. I don't want to say that you got lucky by any means, but like, I feel like everything kind of worked out for you and how your career, because say if you did go to the airlines, if you were a new, you've been there for two years, you got September 11th, you were almost guaranteed to be furloughed. Yeah. And, but you chose a different route and you stuck with it and you went into it and taking that risk and that option to do that rather than go to the airlines. Cause when you turned down the airlines, it's probably the last time the airlines were paying very well, where it was a very good job to have. And you kind of stepped away from that. And and you went to the military again and you went to, to the National Guard and it kind of paid off for you because it gave you security in your job. So you didn't have to deal with bad time of the airlines as much as other people had to. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm very blessed that I didn't. Uh, I, I had several friends that got hired right about my time and they were all furloughed. And that's a hard road. That's uh, that's a reality of the flying business, too. If you're furloughed, now you're out there trying to um, find a job 
and your career or your skill set is flying airplanes and there's no jobs for that. Um, it's difficult. It's a difficult time for those guys and gals that, that are stuck in that position. So I was very grateful. I had that full-time position. I loved my job. I love flying the Learjet. It is a super fun airplane to fly. It flies like a fighter for about an hour and a half or two hours. Um, beyond that, it's a tiny cockpit. And we used to tease and say it was just a pain train, you know, for the three, four hour <laughs> legs. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fun airplane to fly. Really enjoyed it. You know, I love the job. And, you know, I can tell you kind of what our missions are. I get I get that question a lot on Instagram. What, what do you actually do? I've kind of kept that a secret, but, you know, I can I can mention a few of what we did. Yeah, for sure. Go for it. Yeah, we'd love to know what you did and what the Air National Guard kind of provided for a service and what they required out of you. Here's another thing that's kind of neat about the Guard before I talk about that. The Guard has the ability to draw in very experienced pilots because the, the pilots coming to the Guard all have most have spent, you know, 10 plus years active duty. So they're pretty experienced folks when they come in and it's just it's just a different dynamic. So you have some very experienced. We're older, but that's part of being experienced, I guess. Uh, you have some very experienced pilots coming in. And our unit was that it was filled with the most experienced C-21 pilots in the world. You know, the average C-21 active duty guy would maybe get 1,500 hours, maybe 2,000 hours. We had guys with five, 6,000 hours in the in the Learjet, which in the military is a lot. But uh, so, yeah, so that is very experienced folks. But we, in essence, had three what I would call distinct missions. The first is we provide airlift. We carried around uh, different people. A lot of them tended to be general officers. It's DV airlift support. So we would uh, do that both here in the in the states, and we did that in combat zones. Um, you're you're carrying around you know different leaders, moving them from place to place. We also had the ability to carry cargo. It's a limited basis. It's a Learjet. It's not huge, but you can definitely put cargo in there. When I was deployed, one of the, the things that we carried a lot was the film from the U-2. So the U-2 would do their missions, and then they'd have these giant rolls of film, and we would load that up in the in an airplane and then take it to where it needed to, to go so that it could ultimately uh, analyze it. That's crazy to think about. Like You think about planes that are flying and taking pictures, but you don't think about everything that's behind that. You don't think about the film or now, I mean, it might be more digital, but you don't think about the process of getting those photos from point A to point B where we can actually do something with those. Yep. That's it. Yeah. And then probably the mission that I, I enjoyed the most, my followers on Instagram would see often and wonder what I was doing as we tested our air defenses. So when you see the fighters off my wing, and I won't go into great detail on what and how we did that, but in essence, we, after September 11th, the leader said, you know, we're going to do everything we can to prevent that from ever happening again. And so uh, we have, uh, we've instituted some processes and, and that's one of the, our main jobs was we tested the air defense fences around the U.S. and in Canada, you know, again, without getting into a ton of detail how we did that. It's that's what was happening when you would see, uh, you know, fighters off my wing. I mean, someone needs to test it because you got to make sure things work or think that the responses are how they should be. So, I mean, that's another thing that you don't really think about is the maintenance and the testing to make sure things should be working the way they are. Yeah, that's a vital mission for our country. By testing these guys and making sure they're proficient on what they're doing, you know, we're ultimately helping provide security for the country. And uh, it's a mission that uh, we definitely don't want to see go away. I know recently on Instagram, you actually posted about how the, it's a very real possibility that it might go away. Do you want to go into some detail about what's going on with that at all? The gist of what's going on right now is our unit has been slated to be closed down in fiscal year uh, 18. You know, I don't know how that happens. You know, it's it's the people that look at the budget. But ultimately, I mean, it's going to close down a, a unit that is very active in our air defense. And quite honestly, it will impact, as you would imagine, all of the pilots and all the, the personnel that work in that squadron, them and their families are, are uh, definitely impacted. And, you know, as we've talked about, the Air Force is really short on pilots right now. So it doesn't really make sense that you would, in essence, kick uh, 20 pilots out onto the street. You know, obviously, being retired, I can speak out against that now. I want to do whatever I can to help out my fellow brothers and sisters that are in that unit, some great folks, and they provide a great mission and uh, a great service to our country. So uh, I just wanted to thank people. I know several people made calls, you know, just to encourage the senator of Colorado and even the governor to, you know, to help support keeping us open. So I, I do appreciate that for the folks that did help us out. Yeah, you mentioned that they can make calls and that the average person in the country can actually help you out is is to make that call and make those emails and to reach out to them. Do you want to say here publicly what they are or do you want to say a place where they can find them or how they can do that? Or Yeah, if you go to 
you know, it's on my uh, it's on my post. It's the Combat Layer Jet. It's it's the post where I talk about us being closed down. The the phone numbers are in there. Uh, it's for uh, Michael Bennett and Corey Gardner. Um, and and that's that's just a way of basically letting them know, and they know I'm sure, but just saying, hey, we want to support keeping the you know this flying squadron open. Again, I hate seeing any flying squadron closed down. I, I just I know some people think, oh, there's plenty of that, but there's really not anymore. We have downsized so much from the time I entered the military. Uh, I just, I hate seeing us get smaller and smaller and smaller. No, for sure. And like you said, there's already a huge shortage and to get rid of 20 pilots doesn't, doesn't seem like the best idea right now. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's not only just 20 pilots, it's 20 pilots on the very top of their game. They're all, most of them are evaluators, instructors, and you know, the number I've heard, there's probably $200 million worth of uh, money that has went into training and getting these pilots to this level. So, Would they be released from duty or would they be assigned to different uh, different missions? What would happen with those pilots? Yeah, it depends. That's the unknown. You know, if you go away, then at that point you don't have a job. So they have to, they would have to try to go find a, you know, another job potentially somewhere. And there's, you know, no guarantee of that anywhere. Uh, some of them are, are the part-time types that I talked about, and maybe they have an airline job outside, but they still need to, you know, finish out their military service. Yeah. So like you said, so you were, you stayed there for an extra 10 years so you can get your retirement. So that was, if it's, that's taken away from someone, if they don't have the option to do that, they might have to go back into active duty or might have to hope they can find something so they can get that retirement. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely a hardship. Uh, any way you look at it on top of the fact that we're losing a valuable asset to our country. Yeah. So if anyone's listening to this and you want to help out, go ahead and reach out to, to combat Learjet, reach out to Steve. I'm sure you could message him and he can give you those or look at his actual post where he lists out the numbers or even just do a Google search. I'm sure there's, there's plenty of resources online that you can find to help them out and make sure that that's not closed down and you can show your support. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Steve, and you are the owner and operator of a really great Instagram page, Combat Learjet. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that started, what the idea came from, and did you ever think that it'd become the page that it is today? <laughs> no, I, I'm still in shock. It, it really has grown to that size. Um, Combat Learjet, the name came from a patch, a deployed patch that we had that basically was, it said Combat Learjet, and if you've seen it on my site, it's unaware, unafraid. You know, it's a tongue-in-cheek type patch. The unaware means we have no way of really uh, identifying <laughs> enemy threats out there. And we're flying this airplane into some very threat-filled locations. Uh, it's been in and out of uh, Kandahar, Kabul. I've flown in and out of several locations in Iraq. So yeah, it, there's places that were definitely <laughs> inhospitable and we were flying it in there. So so that was kind of the running joke is that we had no raw gear, if you will, anything to uh, identify any threats or any, any way of defeating threats. So that's the unaware and then the unafraid was obviously just that. We, we don't have it, but we're still going. So that was an ongoing, I guess, joke with the patch. So that's where the idea came from. You know, I had, uh, obviously it was combat Learjet and it was, it was straight from that. So my idea when I started Instagram was I just posted my own pictures, you know, as we talked about air defense stuff. I had a lot of amazing videos of different airplanes on my wing. Probably the one that really got my account, I was pretty small. I posted a video of the Swiss F5s intercepting us as we're flying through Switzerland. And I just, it's a great video. I posted it and I think Instagram Aviation, one of the big aviation sites reposted that. And next thing I know, my, my page was just getting, you know, blown up and growing like crazy for a few days. You know, I had like 100 followers and then within a couple of days, I had like 600 followers or something. So yeah, so that was the whole intent. I wanted to just share some of my experiences. You know, I feel like at times I'm dating myself, but when I, you know, early on in my flying career, I many times I'm like, man, I wish I had a camera or a video camera for this. And now that we carry around a phone with one on it all the time, I started being able to capture some of those cool images. And I just wanted to share some of that. So that was the whole intent behind it. And then, you know, it just began to grow. And then I realized that it was a forum for people to kind of reach out that didn't know much about military pilots and or aviation. And it gave me the opportunity to kind of, you know, engage with different people, answer questions. I know there's a couple people out there that there's one right now, I won't mention his name, but he's getting ready to go to pilot training. And we started talking before he ever even knew a lot about the military. He, he wanted to know what it was like and he went through the whole process and now he's waiting to go to pilot training. So That's uh, awesome. It was cool to interact with him and 
kind of see it from you know start to finish. Really, that that was it. And then somewhere along the line, I, I at first I kept my my posts only my own, and then I realized honestly, I just, I got tired of seeing my own post. I'm like, you know, how many times can you put a F-15 on your wing? It's a yeah, they're cool, but after a while, you're like, okay, I've seen that. So that's where I kind of started looking and going, you know, I want to be a little different. I want to I want to post cool aviation stuff that really I'm interested in, and I still post some of my own stuff. But honestly, that's where my page really started growing is when I just started posting things that I thought were interesting. And so I I just uh, I would do that. And, you know, next I know people were getting reposting them and seeing things. And it's Instagram's kind of a snowball. Uh, it, you know, it starts at first you post the coolest thing in the world and you get three likes. And you're like, wow, I think that's cooler than three likes. But, uh, you know, it just over time starts growing and, and then it just gets bigger and bigger. And then and then it just almost becomes organic to where it just just grows on its own, you know. Yeah, it's so funny you say that because I remember when I first started, I'd, I would post, like, I don't have a ton of followers, but I have more than I did when I started. And I would post something. I was like, this is the coolest picture I've ever taken. Let me post it. Gets like 10 likes. And you're like, what the heck? This is the greatest <laughs> photo ever. Like, everyone should be reposting it. And then, like, a couple weeks later, I'll post a photo that maybe I'm not, I don't love as much, but it gets like 100 yeah. likes. And it's like, how did that happen? Like, why is that picture getting more than this? Instagram is like a weird world, but it's also such a cool platform for people to create a community. And I think the aviation community on Instagram is probably arguably the best community that there is. And it's amazing to see, like you said, like you help someone achieve their dream of becoming a, a pilot in the military just by reaching out to them or him reaching out to you and talking to him and letting him know your process and how this worked and how he could become a pilot. And he's actually doing that now. And that was all linked up because of Instagram, who knows that this platform wasn't there. He might not even have the chance that he is now. So it's really cool that Instagram has let us do that. Yeah, it really is. I've, I've met some amazing people. You know, I'm shocked at some of the people that are that are out there and it's just it's been really interesting for me i i've loved that that portion of it you know we were talking earlier it, it's it's harder now that it's it's grown so much it, it becomes difficult to manage that and i feel bad because when i was smaller i could maybe engage more with it it's harder now i can only imagine the the amount of dms that you get i bet you can get anywhere from like you can get a couple hundred in a day because your account's so big and people want to get this information but it's hard i know instagram doesn't personally i've realized instagram doesn't do the best job at organizing your dms and it's very hard for a dm to get lost and never be found again so if anyone does reach out to you, I'm sure that you are not ignoring them by on purpose by any means. So yeah, that's a great point. I, I would like if, for people to know that I don't, I don't, I try to answer as much as I can. It, it is overwhelming at times. You get lots and lots of DMs from around the world. I mean, a lot of times I can't even read them, but uh, they're just people wanting to reach out, say something, show you a picture, you know, whatever. Just you know, engage with you. And I, I, I don't purposely. Uh, not answer. I'm not that account. I try to be uh, as personal as I can, but I've also realized that I just I just don't have enough time. It it could be a full time job just kind of going through some of that stuff. So um so if I haven't answered your DM, it's not because I'm just ignoring you and I feel I'm above you. It's probably because I didn't see it or I just haven't been able to uh, you know manage that properly. If he hasn't reached out to you yet, just know that it's either going to happen or it could happen. Or don't give up on him. And he's not a bad person just because he hasn't gotten back to you yet. Yeah, I, I try to because I know there's a lot of good questions in there. That's that's really where those good ones come. How do I become a pilot? How do I become a military pilot? What's the path? What's it like? What do you recommend? I get a lot of medical questions. I I have this condition. Could I still be a, med- a pilot? And I've actually reached out. I've got some flight docs that are friends of mine, and I've reached out and asked them, hey, a guy asked me he's got this going on. Could he uh, still be a military pilot? And, you know, I'll give him whatever answer I can back just to, you know, try to help out in that area. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like we said earlier, we're always trying to help people out in this community. And that's one of the reasons why I did this podcast is to have some sort of resource for someone to be like, hey, how do I do this? How do I do that? And then they can go look at episode eight of the podcast and see that we talked about that or whatever episode it was and they can listen to it and then kind of take information from there. And that can be kind of the first step. So I think that's really awesome that you're willing to talk to people because I know there are some accounts that aren't too. You know, we talked a little before too. I, I try to keep the account fun and exciting. I love aviation. I love airplanes. I love all that. But I, I get tired of seeing all that all the time. So so that's where some of the humor comes in. That's where, you know, I make fun of pilot stuff or I tease some of the flat earthers or chemtrailers. You know, it's just, it's all in good fun. I don't hate or really uh, want to, you know, uh, belittle anybody. It's just, I tease them in good faith. And I know some of the flat earthers would, would agree that I haven't viciously went after them. I obviously don't agree with anything they believe, but I still like to have a good time with it. That's what it is. So humor is part of the account. I, I try to mix it up. 
I'd like to think that a lot of pilots have a good sense of humor. Now, they might be having bad days or they had long flights or somewhere wrong and they don't, but I think overall pilots have a good sense of humor because I know I can appreciate your post and I really appreciate when you and pilot stuff kind of go at it and your last post of the plane with the engine on just running around in circles and saying pilot stuff was struggling today it just had me laughing very hard now are you and pilot stuff actually friends did you guys meet over instagram or did you guys know each other beforehand we're really good friends and it's funny you ask that question i i get dms a lot going why do you hate pilot stuff so much <laughs> and uh you know i laugh and i'll answer them but honestly uh we're in the same unit together and he's a good friend of mine and we've flown him many a times together and uh he started instagram probably a year after me or so and we just, you know, I, I don't know how it turned into us giving each other a hard time, but it did. You know, people people like it. I enjoy it. And uh, he's a great guy. And, uh, you know, at some point, hopefully uh, we'll be able to have him on a, a podcast, too. But, yeah, he's a good guy. And, uh, yeah, there's no there's no real anger between us. I appreciate the fact that you guys have this little this little battle going on because I think it's really funny. And it, it provides some happiness in a day when someone might be having a rough day and they can just have something to laugh at. So it's pretty cool. Well, and that's just like you said, that's a nature and I think that's there's a lot of that in the military where we give each other a hard time and it probably comes natural to us, I guess, in that. Oh, yeah. And I even say that's the nature of military, like you said, but also the nature yeah. of pilots. I think like, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of ego in being a pilot and everyone wants to be the best, but it's also really cool to see when you can form a community and get a group of friends and you can kind of bring someone down but be like, hey, you remember when you bounced the airplane six times on the runway or you can just poke fun at each other and just bring them down a notch. It's always fun. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And cool. And then you mentioned earlier about your patches that you had. I remember the patches that you came out with and the combat Learjet ones, and I thought they were very cool. Where did you get those from? Like, I know it was a limited time offer. Are you going to bring those back at all? Are you going to bring anything else back like that? Yeah, I actually have, uh, I have another patch I haven't released yet. It's the same combat Learjet patch in my desert. It's in a desert, uh, more of what I wore when I was over there. But actually Mo Guns, uh, MoGuns.com, I've partnered with him. And he does all the stuff. He does the designing for me. He does. Uh, he manages it on his webpage. You know, he puts in the orders. He ships it out. I mean, he is truly the uh, wizard behind the curtain on that. And, uh, you know, I just I'm able to talk to him and say, hey, I like this or that. Or what do you think about that? And he'll put it all together. So there's more to come. Uh, we're looking at doing a coin. I know stickers are going to be available here pretty soon. So all that stuff is, you know, it's just it's combat layer jet stuff. It's part of what I'm doing as I move on into my retirement life. Yeah. So he's got a fantastic business and obviously I'd encourage you moguns, M-O-E-G-U-N-S.com. You know, you can see what he has for patches and apparel. Cool. And also, if any of the combat Learjet fans out there are interested in any of those, let them let either me know or him know, and I'll relate to him what you guys think about the stickers coming out, patches, what you or any other kind of products that you guys would want to rock from them. Because I know that the patches are really cool, and I was jealous and never got one. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. So obviously, combat Learjet has kind of exploded into its own thing, where I'm sure you have fans and groupies and all these people just waiting for you to release your your post and uh, follow you and what's next for a combat learjet is you guys have anything in the plans are you going to come out with new stuff or are you just going to strictly stick with instagram primarily instagram i just recently started facebook there is a facebook uh, page combat learjet but uh, you know i'm not very good at posting on it all the time i'm trying to but uh there's a lot of interest in some of the stuff for combat combat learjets obviously uh you know, a name and it's part of, I guess, who I am. And uh, so we're looking at some different ideas, you know, as we as we move forward. Uh, like I said, some, you know, maybe uh, some coins or maybe some aviation oriented stuff. Obviously, it's it's an aviation theme and I'd like to stick with some of that. You know, that's the gist of it. I, I enjoy personally, I enjoy Instagram better than Facebook. And that's really the the platform that I enjoy using. And I just try to keep it uh, real and keep you know, putting content out there that if I enjoy it and look at it and go, that's cool, then then I'll post that. And then the last question I have for you before we go is, let's say that there's someone listening to this, they're, I don't know, 12 to 16 years old or even younger or older, and they could ask you right now, hey, I want to be a military pilot. How do I go about that? What route would you recommend? What would you say to them right now if they came up to you? Yeah, that's a great question. And I actually do get that question quite often. I, the first thing I would tell them is, you know, they really need to stay out of trouble, stay away from drugs. And I know that sounds cliche, but all those kind of things can haunt you. You get in trouble and you get something on your record or you have some kind of drug incident. 
then uh, a lot of times you can just uh, write that off. And you're thinking, wow, that's pretty strict for just maybe a one-time thing, but it is what it is. Uh, I encourage young people to definitely stay away from that stuff that's going to making choices today that will impact your future tomorrow. So uh, the other thing is good grades. Um, study hard for the ACT, SAT. You know, if you can do well on those, those can help write your ticket. And then just plan on which way you want to go. I obviously encourage people towards the Air Force um, because that's what I know. But there's obviously other paths out there with the Navy or Marines. And, you know, even the Army, if you want to, you know, fly helicopters and do some of that. So I would encourage the Air Force from what I know. We have we have a lot. If that's what you're wanting to do is fly, then that's your best opportunity, I think, to, to do that with how many airplanes we have in the Air Force. And then, you know, just start looking at the different roads. You can go to the Air Force Academy, like we talked about, ROTC, or you can just go out and get your degree and then go through OTS. Yeah, that's really good information. I think that is uh, very helpful for anyone listening that has this kind of idea in their mind that maybe the military is a route for them. And I think that if that's something you want to do, that is awesome. And I think you should look into it and just talk to someone, reach out to to Steve or reach out to anyone you know, call your local recruiter and just talk to them, talk about the process and see what it all takes, what it, what it takes to be a pilot. And one thing going on to what you're saying about stay off, stay out of drugs and stay out of trouble. I can see why they do that because there's a trust thing going on there where you're going to have to fly very, very, very expensive equipment and they need to trust you. And also you're going to be in very stressful times and they need to know how you're going to react and that you are a good person. And not to say if you do one thing wrong, doesn't mean you're a bad person, but they just want to have some kind of trust there with them. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know how it is now, but there some of the questions are, have you ever done drugs? So they're, they're looking for that. So I just say to be able to avoid any conflict in that area, just stay away from it. And, uh, you know, again, try to think about tomorrow, not today. For sure. Which it can be hard when you're a younger kid, but it's very important. Absolutely. Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun to kind of dig into the military side and see the process and see what kind of planes you started on, what kind of planes you flew, the type of flying that you would do. And I wish you the best in your career, uh, whether you're flying, whether you're doing combat Learjet stuff, if whatever you do, if you ever have any questions or you want to reach out or come back on the podcast, let us know because I've really enjoyed this and I'd love to interview you again. But I hope you have a great day and can't wait to talk to you again. Well, I appreciate it, brother. Thank you so much for having me on. It was it was great. Uh, I appreciate the initial offer, and it was good to actually talk about this stuff because this qu- these questions come up a lot, and and I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having me on. And that is a wrap of episode 12 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast. I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. If you did, as always, please leave us a review at iTunes. Email us, pilottopilothq at gmail.com comment or dm on our instagram at pilot to pilot if you're interested in being on the podcast email me dm me comment let me know i'd love to interview everyone and tell everyone's story as i said in a couple other podcasts we are working on a website give us some information on what you want on that website do you want us to come up with some kind of merchandise do you guys want us to have a place where you can communicate with each other where aviation can talk to each other and help everyone get through this aviation career or do you just want it to be about the podcast and nothing more let me know we're interested in seeing where this can go happy flying aviation